Hi everyone, welcome to Third Spacing the Podcast, where we explore topics in the peripheries of clinical medicine in Singapore. I'm your editor, Ho Son. Today we have Professor Gerald Koh from the Sauce Hawk School of Public Health and Head and Clinical Director, Future of Primary Care at the Ministry of Health Office for Healthcare Transformation. He is also the founder of T Rehab. In this episode, we talk about the increasing presence of technology in medicine and what are the other ways in which medicine can counterintuitively make healthcare even more personal. Hi, Prof. Ko. Thank you so much for joining us today. I was wondering if we could start the interview maybe with your work with T-Rehab, the startup that you co-founded. It kind of is the synthesis of technology, engineering, business, and medicine. So T and T Rehab is short for tele, so it's about tele-rehabilitation. This body of research that which uh, I have been working on uh, started in uh, 2009 when two professors from engineering approached me, Professor Arthur Tay as well as Dr. Yen Shiching. They approached me then, they're from the electrical and computing engineering, and they were unusual compared to most other engineers. They actually asked me, most other engineers would actually ask me, is, I have this technology, can, is there a medical condition that this technology can solve? But this time around, they were different. Arthur and Shiching came up to me and asked me, Gerald, uh, is there a medical problem that you need engineering to help you solve? So at that point in time, I already had done some health services research and rehabilitation in Singapore, in particular rehabilitation, geriatric rehabilitation to the elderly who need rehabilitation in community hospitals, as well as after when they go back home and they, they receive rehabilitation at day rehab centers. One of the findings I, I found was that out of 100 patients uh, when they leave the community hospital, who I advise to continue with rehabilitation after they, they go home, only a third of them actually come back and resume rehabilitation in the day rehab center. Two-thirds do not come back. And again, my research showed that the people who went for rehabilitation had better functional recovery at the end of one year uh, than those who did not go for rehabilitation, which is actually a no-brainer. But what was key for me was to find out the reasons why patients were not going for rehabilitation. And the three main categories of reasons why patients don't go for rehab, first one is the, the very reason why you need rehab is the very reason why you can't get to rehabilitation centers. Um, disability. The other set of challenges that they face is what I would classify as social barriers, uh, which is basically for these patients who have functional disabilities, it's very hard for them to get to a day rehab center by themselves they need to be accompanied by someone for safety reasons, because they need physical support, etc., etc. So, it, and with a lot of people in Singapore working, uh, there are very few people who can afford to take time off two times a week, three times a week for half a day to bring a loved one to a day rehab centre to receive rehabilitation. The third set or category of challenges that uh, patients who need rehab face is financial. The classic example I will give is when you see a specialist um, that in total costs 150 dollars uh, or two hundred dollars per visit but if you say you go and see you go to a day rehab center it might cost maybe about fifty dollars per visit so at face value it looks like it's actually uh, seeing a doctor is actually three times more expensive than seeing a therapist but you only need to see the specialist in a specialist outpatient clinic but maybe once in three months but for rehabilitation for it to work well you actually need to take it initially to go for rehab maybe once a week twice a week every week for up to about two three months so if you think about it Rehab, although it's $50 per visit, over three months, you need, let's say, for example, 12 visits, one visit per week. Then the cost multiplies immediately to $600 in three months, 
Whereas as you see the specialist, you only need to spend $150 in three months. So the cost of rehab cumulatively is expensive. And my studies kind of demonstrated that, you know, when they, when patients uh, look at the barriers to rehab, uh, financial barriers doesn't start off as a major barrier, but by the end of the first month, second month, third month, and, and thereafter, it becomes more frequently cited as a barrier why they can't, why they stop rehabilitation. So knowing why patients don't go for rehab, it kind of bothered me. I mean, you know rehab works. You know two-thirds of patients don't go for it. So I challenged them. I said, you know, what I need to do is we need to see, instead of expecting the disabled patient to go to the day rehab center to receive rehab, can we bring rehab to the patient instead? Now, in theory, that's already done today because uh, there's such things as home rehabilitation. But it's very expensive. For a therapist to do a home visit, it can cost up to also about $200 to $300 a visit. Similarly, in my research, I also kind of demonstrated that the secret ingredient of why patients uh, improve in terms of their functional recovery is not total amount of exercise they do, but rather independent predictor was the fact that he, he went back regularly to see the therapist. And that makes sense because when a patient recovers a little bit, after one week, he sees a therapist again, therapist reassesses the patient, then says, okay, he's improved by this certain amount. The new set of exercises that I prescribed will challenge him to work harder at a higher level so that he can improve further in the next subsequent week. And you cannot expect a patient to know what exercises to do given his recovery in the preceding week. A therapist is an expert to know that. So this iterative cycle results in this positive spiral or so towards greater functional recovery. So for the tele-rehab system to work, therapist was a key ingredient in this tele-rehab system. So from 2009 to now, we worked on this tele-rehab system. It was an amazing journey because there were probably a like hundred iterations. So the key challenge is actually teaching engineers about medicine and me as a clinician learning engineering <laughs> and computing. So we both had to learn uh, each other's discipline, f form a common language and a common uh, understanding so that we can when we develop a system, I need to explain to them why the system doesn't seem to work at face value, why, what's so unique about patients. The key crux was when there were a bunch of engineering students and for the first time I brought them to see stroke patients in Amokyo Taipan Hospital and one of the engineering final year students broke down and cried. After she did the, after she tested the system on a patient, and I asked her why, and she said, "I've never seen a patient so disabled before, so sick before." Mm. And sadly to say, she actually left the program prematurely because she couldn't take emotionally seeing a patient that was so ill, or at least so disabled. And so, through multiple interventions, we eventually developed the telerehab system. Fast forward three, four years after the randomized control trial was done, uh, the key findings was actually that telerehabilitation was not inferior to usual care. So the, the actually patients who went to tele-rehab instead of face-to-face uh, -face visits at the day rehab center had same functional recovery, slightly better but not statistically significant recovery as those that actually had usual care. And as a result, the Ministry of Health, IHIS, Integrated Health Information Systems, got interested in, in this tele-rehabilitation system. So they actually funded it for it to be moved on to a proof of value sort of stage. So we actually rolled out the tele-rehab on, uh, on a greater variety of conditions as well as on a wider number of sites. So we just recently presented the, to MOH as well as IS. So in order to do that, we had to form a company. Oh, I see. <laughs> yeah, so we had to do this. We had to create an NUS startup company. As I was listening to you speak, especially the bit in which you said, Oh, the engineers had to learn what doctors do. And yes. doctor, as you as a doctor, you had to learn what an engineer does. And I was just thinking about how now it really seems to be like the prime time if you're interested in healthcare transformation 
to do it. I think this is like a nice segue to talk about your work in the MOHHT in your work as the clinical director for the future of primary care. It's about self-managing chronic diseases in partnership with primary care providers yes. and the development of a national telehealth platform and purposeful incorporation of technologies that enable effective and sustainable home management. So I was wondering, how's your work like with MOHHT? Like? Okay, because now actually in primary care, I don't do any rehab. <laughs> so oh, okay. none of, the, of my TV rehab uh, actually, I do any of my TV rehab work in, mm. in the future primary care team. But I think the experiences I gain working on developing and in, trying to implement in clinical practice as in multiple sites across clusters for TV rehab actually holds invaluable lessons for me, which I apply when I'm actually doing my work in the, in the future primary mm. care or which I would call the FPC uh, team in, in MOHT. What we're trying to do in the future primary care team is actually come up with innovations and solutions that we that will actually meet future needs of Singapore. So we are a future proofing sort of a of a unit within the MOH. But I think we all know the future challenges of Singapore. And one of the possible solutions that we that experts and the world recognizes as a possible solutions is actually the use of technology. If we can use technology to support patients better so that they manage the conditions better in the community when they are at home. That would be great. And of course, if we can use technology to increase the productivity of our healthcare workforce, then we can actually handle our care for more patients at a higher quality with future manpower. So technology is seen as an important enabler, I think, for future-proofing our healthcare system. Primary care is an area that can also benefit a lot from, from technology. And one of the areas that we've actually embarked upon to first explore telehealth and hypertension or high blood pressure. So we actually have been working with Amokyo Polyclinic, which is part of the National Healthcare Group of mm. Polyclinics, uh, to introduce a telehealth system or a telehealth practice among hypertensives. So the general idea is we give our patients a machine. And we, again, one of the lessons I learned in TV have is the need to be user-centric. And when I mean user, I don't mean just the patient. I also mean the healthcare professional. So the DPV machine has to be very easy to use. So we, we had to... Uh, select DP machines that's just a single button you press and the blood pressure is taken it automatically sends the reading to uh, Amokyo Polyclinic nurse mm. the telecare nurse who would then have a record of all the patient's blood pressure readings and because we also wanted to increase productivity one of the challenges we posed was is you know in hypertension you normally see the patient once every three months and you review the medication at each visit and you measure the blood pressure each visit with telehealth now you can have ask the patient to do blood pressure once a week. And so you have many more readings to decide whether to increase doses or not. And you may not necessarily have to wait for three months before you change your dose. So if you really notice the blood pressure is not, is not going down after one month of medication, uh, the telecare nurse is authorized to call, the, uh, with, the, uh, with the approval of the doctor, to call the patient and say, okay, you know, you're currently on enlodipine, uh, half a tablet, 2.5 milligrams OM. I think you can actually increase it to 5 milligrams OM instead of taking half a tablet, please take one tap. And then uh, in the subsequent month, you, will be, you just continue measuring your blood pressure and we'll see where your blood pressure comes down. Uh, so we can actually do medical titration between face-to-face visits. Mm. Now we're actually looking that, that the blood pressure is controlled, that we, you don't need to come for the third month visit. You don't. You can completely skip that, that mm. visit, just collect the medications for the, for the next six months from the pharmacy. Yeah, the medications can even be delivered to you. And then you see the patient at month six. So you, immediately you drop one visit. Mm. Hypertension is the most common chronic disease. So there are a huge number of people that can benefit 
So our preliminary results that we obtained is that we find that the patients in the intervention group actually get better and faster blood pressure control at the end of um, six months than the usual care group. Which again is not surprising because you're monitoring the patient in between visits and you're also titrating medications in between. And when you look at patients' feedback and staff feedback on tele-rehabilitation or tele-BB monitoring, their response has been positive. Patients say, I feel cared for, I feel I'm being monitored, so I feel safer. Um, I like the fact that I see my blood pressure control faster. There's this positive feedback loop very quickly and as a result, patients always feel more confident when the blood pressure gets controlled quickly. Healthcare providers also found, uh, found that the system was not too overburdensome for them because this, we, in addition to telemonitoring, we created a dashboard system in the telecare nurses interface. So that all those cases that our blood pressure is well controlled, downward trend, it doesn't appear, it doesn't get flagged up mm. as a problem. All those with blood pressure, uh, like emergency, hypertensive emergencies, those whose blood pressures are very high, uh, immediately get shifted up to a dashboard so they can they know how to de- they know which cases are the ones that they need to deal with so it makes them easier because they just the, the system has the intelligence to actually automatically prioritize the cases for them based mm. on the BP readings it provides peace of mind it reduces the efficiency you don't have to go through 130 records every day mm. it's automatic we are also looking at exploring the use of chatbots to make the experience of using telehealth more personalized for the patients like if a patient is taking his blood pressure regularly and his blood pressure is well controlled because he's taking his medications regularly, and you want to give positive and reinforcement, but we don't do that in health, in usual healthcare mm. <laughs> because we're so busy, we have no time to say good job. Mm. Right, we're always dealing with their mm-hmm. problems. But why don't we leave it to a chatbot? So if a chatbot system says, okay, bring you told the patient bring back the, the tele BP machine, take your readings, and then he submits his first reading, then chatbot can. And this chatbot doesn't require any human. It's all automatic. All automated. Mm. Good job. You've done your first reading. Keep up mm. the good work. Just remember to do your blood pressure reading at once a week. And then subsequently, subsequently, his blood pressure has, uh, remains controlled because he's taking his medication. Then you can also send him a message. Good job. Your blood pressure is controlled this week. Yeah, it's called control for the past three months. You know, keep up the good work. So things using chatbot for things that we never used to do was also something that was cited by the patients as a positive experience. But chatbots can also be used more with challenging things, for example. So a, a classic example would be uh, if the if the AI behind the system picks up, the, it detects that the patient's blood pressure is not going down, the chatbot can send messages to say, okay, we notice your blood pressure is not controlled, you, you know, in anticipation of your regular one-month teleconference call with the nurse to ask you a few questions, so pre-call surveys. So you can ask patients, so you know, have you been, are you been stressed lately? Is that the reason why your blood pressure is up? Have you been non-compliant or non-adherent to your medication? That could also explain why your blood pressure is not down. Um, and so she could ask some pre-call survey questions so that when the nurse goes in and calls the patient, she already has a pre- an idea of what, whether it's, um, uh, what the reasons why the patient's blood pressure might not be, might not be going down. And also be prepared, okay, so if, she's, if the patient says, I'm not stressed, I'm taking my medications regularly, I'm not smoking, then straight away you can say, okay, then I think we still have, we have to increase the dose of the medication. So it actually helps the nurse to become more efficient during the telecare phone calls as well. So again, so they use the technology to, to make things more efficient for patients as well as for, for healthcare providers. That's the promise in healthcare, in telehealth. I thought like the, the most interesting thing, the fact that you can use a chatbot to give reinforcement I was just thinking about how a lot of the times we tend to blame technology for this impersonalness of healthcare. Something which like comes out a lot is you have to look at the computer when you're typing your notes mm. instead of the patient. I'm also thinking about how 
one of the goals is the healthcare transformation is make it more productive at a junior doctor level being more productive can also come at stake at your how much time you can spend with your patients your head boss just one example of how technology can help change it and i was thinking can you envision any other ways in which technology can make healthcare more personal okay i like the point where you said you know, yes, everybody wants personalized care and, and it's about making sure you have enough time with the patient. If let's say there were 10 patients that you had to see today, but three of them actually didn't really need to see you because if mm. they use the telehealth system, mm. they will be happy not to see you because they're busy professionals. Mm. Mm. And if you say your blood pressure is fine, just take a medication, we'll send it to your mm. home, continue taking it, and I don't have to see you to get the medications. Right. That leaves you the same amount of time to see seven patients, i.e. your seven patients get more time. The general idea is that there are patients who actually need to see you mm. and there are patients that you need to spend not your standard five minutes per consult, mm. but maybe 10 minutes consult. Mm. So you, when you use telehealth, you release that time right. for the people who don't really need to see you or don't even want to see you to focus on those that need to see you and you need to spend more time on. That's that's what I mean by productivity because mm. th- there are people with a high-risk versus low-risk patient. So telehealth needs is trying to address that to not have this cookie cutter everybody gets right. five minutes thing, but rather maybe a more intelligent way. Those that need more care, we spend more, we, we allocate the time okay. to them. There is possibility of technology depersonalizing patients and making the dis the increasing the distance between patients and and healthcare workers. So that one don't deny. So we need to be careful. We need to be wary of that. I think a classic example would be how EMRs. As you rightly said, you know, in the past I used to talk to my patients and then I used to write it down. Now I have to actually key it in. But having said that, when GPs write, they're also not looking at the patients, right? But <laughs> for EMRs, unfortunately, if you're not a fast typist, you end up taking more time to uh, type than to, than to write. But that's another issue altogether. The point I'm trying to make is, with, te- with introduction of technology in healthcare, it becomes even more important that doctors of the future need to have good interpersonal skills, need to have higher EQ, have higher empathy, and... You will find that if you look at um, books that are written by opinion leaders, the realization that in the future, doctors, because they are so much things is being taken over by technology, that they are they are more valued in society because of their interpersonal human relation mm. skill sets, mm. and that even we're talking about the various disciplines that, that are currently available, the medical disciplines that are very high touch would end up becoming more valuable than the, than the specialties that are not high-tech. Specialties like psychiatry, hmm. geriatric medicine, family medicine. These are areas whereby it's actually low-tech, high-touch. So these are specialties that will grow in need and grow in importance. And the fact that we're inv- making a policy decision that these are the specialties that we want to invest in, that we want more people in these areas because of recognition that in the future, hmm. we need high-touch disciplines thinking about the um, another thing about technologies because like mm. I know like technology is moving like crazy fast there seems to be like a lot of hope in technology to solve all our problems like uh, okay. I, I think that's a general like optimism about technology and in my family medicine posting I could mm. see on one hand I went to like this very new polyclinic in Pioneer but on the other hand I went to my GP and he uses a GP Connect which is this, a CMS a clinic management system and even though he uses that system, he still uses his handwritten notes within his clinic. So my question really is like, how do you make sure that technology is like implemented properly? You had an earlier point. Mm. You said technology moves very fast. My answer is, as in healthcare, 
there's nothing we can do to control the speed that technology develops or evolves, right? Mm. And I don't think it's our role to do that. But I think at least your generation, innovators in the healthcare healthcare space, who are interested in tele, the field of telehealth and health technologies, are naturally tuned to pick up when a new technology, when it emerges, has the potential to help our healthcare. One of a, a surgical resident who recently came up to me and said, you know, we only use Google Alexa or Google Home or Google mm. uh, Google Hub uh, to actually dictate operation notes. Yeah. So in the sense that uh, after you do the surgery, you have to type out all your yeah. notes and everything you, you did. If it's a super long surgery, yeah. you might forget when something was done and what. You can actually just get it all captured audio, get it automatically typed out and then you can just, at the end of the surgery, you don't even have to type or write, you know, and everything is recorded accurately, so to speak. But I think... So he wanted to try that out in, in the operating theatre. I think one of the things we were worried about was, you know, if we transcribe what's available to text, there might be a mistake in there. The other thing was invasion of privacies. And so that project was put on hold. But the point is, you, you need innovators in the field of healthcare to say, okay, I see a new innovation coming up. I see potential users for it. Let's try it out. And then you find that there are bugs in the system, challenges and, 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 and such. And that's fine. You will never know what the bugs, challenges that would be if you didn't try it. And once you've identified what the bugs is, and maybe the current uh, the current stage of, of development and innovation does not solve these bugs, you might want to wait for a few years later for it starts to mature, that you say, okay, I think the product is in a more mature state that maybe they may be able to use it again. So I think it's not a linear mm. one-off event. It mm. is a multiple iterative event. And every time you try to bring something in, you learn new lessons, which are very illuminating. You will not look, realize the issues until you try it once. And then you keep an eye out for newer developments because not only can technology change, healthcare can also change. Some of the challenges of telehealth solutions, they, there's actually no funding mechanism for telehealth, right? If, for example, there's no subsidies for telehealth, so the existing subsidy schemes don't fund telehealth. Okay. So as a result, telehealth cannot take off. So let's say overnight we say, okay, now we will be, for these particular conditions, we will feel the evidence has emerged enough to, to justify the use of this of a tele. Uh, Televital science monitoring to be useful in certain scenarios in certain cases and therefore subsidies are now available for it then that will change things again so this mindset of one failure is not the end mm. you must I mean it's what we always teach the younger generation right failure doesn't mean it's not a bad thing because there, there are things to be learnt and you don't so you don't repeat the same mistake again or you become wiser the next time around change management from our work in the MOHT is very important that involves involving the end provider with the system, which includes patients as well as, for in our scenario, the family physicians. So we actually meet up with them every two weeks. And at every stage, we say, okay, we tested this down, we found these mistakes, now we address the barriers uh, that, that emerged from us for the first try. It can be solved by, perhaps by finance, it may be solved because we need to, to go back to the company and say we need to adapt the system. So this iterative process is say, okay, learn something, identify what needs to be done, doing the second round of changes and then testing again, you need to involve the healthcare team. You need to evaluate to decide whether or not the outcomes are worth the, uh, is worth the investments of time and, and, and money. And so whether it's effective in the first place, you need to involve HR, corporate, in, in order to look project, manage the project. You may also have to involve chief information security officer. Data security is very important. So a lot of these telehealth interventions require a multidisciplinary team. So And, and they need to meet regularly and iteratively and there are sometimes we push ahead and sometimes we realize okay you know it's it's too 
too many changes are going on, the people on the ground are not ready to accept it, be it staff or patients, then we hold back. And we say, okay, we work on something to make it better so that we reduce the threshold to embrace the technology because right now it's not user-centric enough. So it's, it's, it's about this iterative process and measured, purposeful introduction of telehealth, essential in change management when you want to introduce telehealth. But having said that, in any system, be it the introduction of EPIC, be it the introduction of any new policy in mm. the hospital, change management is fundamental. Healthcare transformation sounds very fancy. Like it's a, like a very macro thing. Okay. When, when you're doing these policy work, or when you're doing research into this area, mm. how, I mean, personally for you, how do you still keep that human touch? Okay, so the, the, the two answers I'm going to give, one is the empathy, and secondly, the need to have a clinician's or a doctor on the ground lens when doing policy. So we go to the first one, we talk about empathy. I think, I don't think that it is necessary to be a doctor in order to have empathy. Mm. I, but I think of it the other way around. If you want to become a doctor, you'll be great if you are very empathetic <laughs> when you go into the, the, to the field of health policy. Health policy is very different from clinical practice, right? In health policy, you also have to look at equity. You also have to look at demographic. You, are, you have to be fair. You also have to look at limited resources. So if you're given a certain amount of budget, but you want to maximize health care within the budget, you have to make some hard choices. What do you do? Where, you know, maybe this of that priority, this is a lower priority. Then you need to be very methodical, evidence based to um, to decide. You know, what's priority one versus priority two, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. So public health is is a little bit more and it's a cold, so to speak, cold and and and, and trying mm. to be objective. But I think at the end of the day, even when you do policy work, when you're making these decisions, and you know these decisions need to be fair decisions and therefore based on evidence. Sometimes you have to choose, okay, this is this priority, this this particular area is a priority versus another area. Mm. At the end of the day, empathy still reigns in your decision making. So mm. I think good policymakers are policymakers who actually are in touch with the ground. Mm. They may not necessarily be practicing full time. They might be practicing at least once a week, or maybe because they have so many years of experience mm. practicing, um, they, they know what the situation on the ground is like. Uh, and to always hold on to that empathy that previous clinical experience or, or, or whatever clinical experience they have current when they're making the policy decisions. I think that is the strength of having a doctor in, in health policy making. That's number one. If you have a limited budget and you have to prioritize and there are 10,000 diseases, what are, what are you going to prioritize if you want to maximize health in the population? Just something that I'm worried about is how about rare diseases or like diseases which are not diabetes, hypertension or high cholesterol? They're never going to be large enough, so-called to say, or they're not going to have a big enough um, economic impetus for you. But we're talking about rare diseases as opposed to com- more common diseases. So top diseases in terms of numbers, right? Yeah, in terms of frequency, quantitative. quantitatively makes sense as to why we should invest money on diseases that are going to contribute to the burden, right? Mm. So that's that's one component. That's in terms of frequency of diseases or a number portion of the population. The other lens layer that you need to consider is also cost, right? Mm. So a, a disease might be common but not cost a lot. Right. A disease might be less common, a rarer disease, but mm. will cost a lot to the country. Mm. So yeah. that would be, in a sense, a priority. This is the reason why I would want to invest in in this in so-called money into looking at the so-called relatively rare disease. There's also a third la- third condition, uh, a third layer to consider, and that is disability or lives, uh, years mm. lived with disability. So 
heart attacks are expensive, but if you die from a heart attack, you die from a heart attack and, 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 and that's it, right? Yeah. There might be years where you have heart failure and all that, yes. But for stroke, majority of strokes, uh, victims right. actually survive and they spend years in disability. And so there's lost income, there's also additional costs of having to manage disability. That also is adds to the element of cost as well and the years of disability. So a third layer to consider would be disability. So the, the fourth layer is social as well as elements as well. So you know there are a lot of socioeconomic determinants of health. So people from who have more socioeconomically uh, disadvantaged, usually uh, if for everything for everything else being fairer, they usually have poorer outcomes because they're difficult to access healthcare and self-manage education and stuff like that. So wearing the, the, the socioeconomic equity lens is another issue. Given that there are four layers to consider when you're doing health policy, it makes health policy making more complex. And when you do health policy making, you have to consider all these all these interplay of all these factors. So if we say, for example, diabetes, hypertension, hypertension, the top three diseases, you think about it, so they are common. So uh, frequency-wise, they're they are high. Mm. Do they cost a lot? Actually, they don't cost a lot to treat DHL. But the effects of uncontrolled DHL is stroke, heart attacks, mm. per, per amputations, which, which cause disability, which cause a lot. And thirdly, you look at, okay, so you've, after you've got your heart attack, your strokes and your amputations, disability is for years. It also costs a lot. And four, we know that the there are socioeconomic determinants, uh, even among, even for DHL, for patients who decide to seek healthcare, not seek healthcare. So those who are more socially economically disadvantaged tend to seek healthcare later. So they don't, mm. they're not usually compliant with the management of DHL and hence they're more likely to first appear to the healthcare system with a heart attack or a stroke. Or so, well, I think to the general public, you think that, oh, you know, we always say DHL because they're the top commonest conditions. There was a far more thought that actually right. went, into, went into deciding why we want to focus on, mm. on DHL. So they actually, we do wear many different lenses and, and, consider, and consider many different issues when we, when, we look, when we try to rank disease and allocate resource, limited resources. I was thinking about the four different things which you said. One thing which I thought would be really important would be like the emotional aspect of having a disease as well, or the mm. emotional aspect of having disability. Sure. And that doesn't seem to be a factor in the policy-making process. But there's this book, Tyranny of like Numbers, where things which can be quantified are prioritised and things that can't be quantified are neglected. Mm. Sometimes in that myth, forget like the emotional toil of having mm. um, like a stroke Absolutely. or... Okay, so when I was in, in America, a major topic is about how racism affects health. Sure. And it might not affect health in the way you might commonly think it is. Like it's not just it's not just solely accessibility of healthcare, it's not just solely cost of healthcare. Absolutely. But it's also how the patient feels. Sure. Um, and which affects how much they trust the healthcare system Absolutely. and how much they access it. So it's not just about numbers. Is there a consideration of this when you're making when you're having all these decision making meetings? What, how do healthcare policy makers like, approach this? And do, is there an attempt to find a balance in this emotional versus this quantitative way of doing things? Emotion in, in health policy making. I think I agree with you. So there is this paradox that's going on. If you think of it objectively, as I mentioned, limited limited resources and try fixed population and trying to make sure the resources are, are maximized across the population. If you let emotion get in the way, if you let emotion sway you to make a decision, then you end up making emotion 
based decisions and not evidence-based decisions. And that's not good health policy making. I think you, you have a situation whereby the loudest voice that canvasses for 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 whatever cause gets hurt as opposed to a rational, fair, balanced approach to deciding how resources are allocated. So I do think that in health policy making there is limited room for emotions. In fact, it mm. actually may not be a good idea to, to, to base it on emotions. But I also hear your point whereby you say that even in policy making, you must not completely block out the emotional aspects of ill health. And I agree with you in that respect as well. So again, so as I mentioned earlier, I think having people on the ground, clinicians, nurses, therapists, whoever part of the healthcare team represented with, within a, a policy-making body is actually important because then they provide the context, they provide the patient experience, they provide things that may not be so obvious through looking at the numbers to policymakers or the other core policymakers when they decide to make a policy decision. And, and from my experience is the non-medical people in, in policy-making positions appreciate the medical person's providing context, especially if they had not had any personal experience, family or personal otherwise. So I do think that's where we that's the role we play as, as healthcare professionals. My next challenge would be a patient voice. Mm. Maybe in policy making we should have a greater presence of patients voicing patients that if you say you're, you're, talking, you're making a policy on a stroke, a stroke patient should be part yeah. of the policy making process to at least so that you can hear the patient voice because not necessarily the doctor can speak on behalf of the patient. Mm. So that I agree is something that we, we will want to explore in future. As for the emotion uh, and numbers, so so I mentioned to you earlier that if you want to bring in the emotional part uh, in health policy making, it cannot be the, the main driver, but you need to be it needs to be considered, so to speak. So one of the ways to be starting to introduce that through health services research and uh, merging on and, and, and health supporting health policy making is the consideration of quality of life. So quality of life measures, my colleague uh, Pop Luanan in my school is an expert in it, has been trying to measure quality of life. In order to convince policymakers, you have to quantify it. Yeah. So yeah, right? You need to be fair. So yeah. quantification helps you to be fair rather than an emotional-based one. So he, he creates tools to measure quality of life and kudos to the Ministry of Health. We are actually taking into one quality of life uh, in our policymaking decisions as well. So this field of health economics whereby uh, we take into account quality of life is called CUA, so cost utility analysis. So uh, quality of life in economic language, we use the word utility. Yeah. So um, it's about using quality of life, patient's quality of life with intervention versus no intervention or new intervention versus old intervention to help make, po- make policy decisions is starting to emerge as a valid tool to, ha- uh, to when you're actually making policy. The third thing I wanted to say is the, when you talk about the emotional part of healthcare and policy making is the emerging value of qualitative research in policy making. So the qualitative research is about capturing the patient's voice, the healthcare provider's voice when managing a certain decision or depending on what, what the study, the qualitative study is focusing on. And qualitative research is is starting to be appreciated by policymakers as well. Because for someone who's non-medical, the fact that you're able to capture the patient's voice through quotations, through thematic analysis, and being presented in a concise manner to policymakers, that it provides the non-medical policymakers immediately an understanding of the context of a particular disease. Because they don't, they, they don't go through it either as a caregiver or they don't go through it as a patient or as a health provider, healthcare provider. So a lot of times when you read qualitative research papers, you go, 
duh, I know about this. All you did was just put it down on pen and paper, put it down in words. And my answer is yes, it might not be useful to you as someone who's already immersed in, let's say, for example, the experience of stroke among patients, right? You publish it. If I'm a stroke neurologist, I would say, it's, I know this. Hmm. But that's not the purpose of the qualitative research. The purpose of qualitative research is actually to let the people who are not experts in your field mm. to understand the patient experience, the mm. patient context about uh, uh, the disease. And that's the value of qualitative research. And, and as I mentioned, it's, it's, uh, it's beginning to be found to be illuminating for non-medical policy, or non-expert policymakers trying to decide uh, on a policy in a field which they may not have any personal experience with. I think like, you have a very interesting like, portfolio of work that you do from like public health, technology and also education so and also like specifically like primary care and geriatrics so i was just wondering when you were in medical school or even before you started medical school i mean i think the technology bit you wouldn't have been able to imagine it. okay maybe i'm wrong <laughs> no 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 yes, the technology was not then when i was in medical school yes continue, yeah. i was just wondering did you know that you wanted to do fan med and geriatrics or do you have like an inclination towards policy making or academia you can't really tell what kind of doctor you want to be until you actually start clinical postings. True, false. True, true, true. Yeah, it's only when you actually see patients posting. It's very different when you're a patient seeing a GP. Your world is okay, medicine is the GP. Then later on, you go to the hospital. You go, oh my god, because I've never been hospitalized before. Mm. No, your world expands when you get exposed to clinical postings. I did not make a decision what I wanted to do until I gave all my clinical postings a fair chance. Mm. Yeah. <laughs> but in third year, when you start clinical postings, one of the postings I first did was actually a family medicine posting. Mm. And I fell in love with family medicine posting. Mm. Uh, not because the only doctor I knew then was a GP, but because I love the fact that you see patients not only in ill health, but also in, in good health. And you develop a longitudinal relationship with them because they see, you see them fall out as they grow up and they grow old. Third thing, I, I like the fact that I saw both the young people, old people, and everybody in between. And fourthly, I like the fact it's partially medical, partially surgical. I love the breath. I like the generalism. But I said, okay, I know I love FM. It's the best. It's the posting I really enjoyed. Let's give the other postings a chance. And then you did internal medicine. Yes, it's it's generalist in nature, but at the same time, it's not surgical. It's only adults, you know. And you don't see, you always see them at the end stage of of disease. Family medicine, I get to see them when they're well. I get an opportunity to tell them to go for the health screening, pick up <laughs> diabetes early, control it well, so they never have to be enter a hospital. And then I did all the subspecialized postings. I was never happy. Yeah, I know. I said, I'm a medical student. I learned the whole human body. I learned about how the community and the public interacts with the patient. But in the end, I specialized in the eye. You know, so <laughs> that did not get me. I, mm. I, I, was, I liked everything. So I knew I was generalist in nature. By final year, I said, okay, I knew I wanted to do family medicine. So yes, yeah, so family medicine was my, my first love. As to why I went to geriatrics was more uh, after, towards the end of my family medicine, so between the, the BST, basic specialty training, and my exams, there was a six months break. And by then, I had done pediatrics, A&E, internal med, psychiatry, whatever, whatever. And I realized that one specialty or one area which I did not get training in was geriatrics. And I said, you know, I, I like this fact that it's cradle to grave, right? So I said, let's go into to geriatrics yeah, and, and then do a geriatric posting. So I did a geriatric posting, but there were, the one that I did was actually in a community hospital. And that was my second love. So I fell in love with community geriatrics and I was in a community hospital, uh, largely because... Um, again, it's so holistic, you know, in geriatrics, you need to know everything <laughs> and, and, and you need to do rehabilitation. It's very challenging. What I really liked about my posting was that in a community hospital, patients come in lying flat. 
because they've just had a stroke or hip fracture, for example, the whole family is very stressed because their their, their mother has, has 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 got a stroke or got a hip fracture. She used to be a caregiver of my children. Now, from turning from being a caregiver, she becomes a care dependent, and then I've lost a caregiver. I've gained a dependent. You know, and, some, and then this family is super stressed, and then they scream at you at admission. Mm. <laughs> they are, they're always very emotional, and then four weeks you work with them, and then they walk up erect they walk out walking with a walk with a walking frame or walking stick and then you because you work so closely with the patient and the family for four weeks the family starts sending you hampers and thank you so much for taking my mother better you know i'm so grateful what all that so the to to turn a life around to 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 intervene when a, when a family is in crisis to be able to get a patient to walk again we go back home maybe and, and safely and integrated in the community it's an incredible feeling and then the fact you know we teach you multidisciplinary t- uh, teamwork in, the, in in school and then when you go to you know it was only in, the, in my community hospital that I actually see it actually working so we have <laughs> multidisciplinary team in geriatrics everybody talking about case saying what we need to how we need to work with other to maximise recovery and all that mm-hmm. and management care and, and all that so basically it brought what I learned in medical school alive to me mm-hmm. so that's where I fell in love with community geriatrics as to teaching, I've always loved teaching. I actually explored joining NUS the, uh, very soon after I graduated with MBBS Fine mm-hmm. Medical School. But I was advised by my seniors to say, okay, you, if you don't finish your basic and advanced specialty training, and you, and you just say you start teaching when you're first year, first three years after you graduate, for example, you don't have a breadth of experience to teach. Mm. Your teaching sounds hollow because you don't, you do, you don't have that, that experience. So they said you should do a BST or AST and then you start teaching. Uh, so I took the advice, but I've always loved teaching. Yeah. So that's the reason why I want to join NUS. So I joined the NUS on the basis of loving to teach. So after I finished my specialty training, I applied for a job in NUS medical school in first year after I graduated from medical school, uh, my first year MOship. Uh, the senior members of the department knew me. So when they heard that I finished my AST, they said, Gerald, are you willing to come back? They finally joined us. And I said, yes, okay, I am. So I joined. By then, NUS had evolved to not just a teaching institution, it also says all assistant professors that come in also need to do research. <laughs> so, uh, but the point of the thing is, one of the things that I began to realize was um, one of the policies that uh, MOH was thinking about was actually just stopping, for a patient at a community hospital, the Ministry of Health was thinking of stopping the, the, the use of MediSafe and MediShield uh, for stay in a community hospital after four weeks of stay. As a clinician working in a community hospital, I actually felt that I'm from experience, I know that patients only maximize their function recovery after six weeks, not four weeks. So I realized that I needed to do research if I wanted to join NUS to, to do what I love, which is teaching. I said, okay, this is something I want to research into. I wanted to understand and prove, you know, that it was actually, you need actually six weeks to maximize functional recovery. And at the point in time when the policy was coming out, I spoke to someone senior in the Ministry of Health, Dr. Ling Sing Lin, and she said, um, Gerald, the reason why we came up with four weeks is because we don't have any, we have no data. So four weeks, the policy is pulled out from the air. And this is what she told me that really changed my understanding of research. She said, Gerald, if you can get me the data, I will fight for you. Mm. Right now, we don't have data in a, from coming from coming hospital. So we, we don't know how to formulate policies. And that's when I realized the importance of doing research. Mm. So I said, okay, because at the time, community hospitals, all the, everything was in, there was no EMR. In <laughs> fact, we were the last sector that eventually EMR'd. Yeah, acute <laughs> hospitals EMR'd first. So, um, so I went back, I collected data uh, past 10 years from 1996 to 2005, collected all the data, 
and I had the great support of all my community hospital colleagues. They gave me free access to the medical records office. My staff, my research staff came in, collected data, entered it into a system, analyzed it. But so I started that in 2005, 2009, the, re the results were coming out. And lo and behold, I managed to demonstrate that the ideal length of stay to maximize rehabilitation efficiency and effectiveness was six weeks and not four weeks. Mm. So I presented at a public health conference of which there were MOH staff present and I managed to shift policy. They managed to realize, okay, maybe we shouldn't be so hard. We and 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 through the years, um, through other forms of research, my research actually managed to also shape policy. Mm. Yeah, so being a researcher was accidental. It was because based of a clinical need. That's mm. why I became a researcher, and so forth. And my research has always been driven trying to answer policy questions, mm. uh, trying to help policy make better decisions. Yeah. And telehealth again was, was born out of need because patients need rehab but they're not getting rehab so instead mm. of, of forcing them to go to the day rehab center why do we use technology to bring it back so so being a clinician and as well as a researcher I have found that my clinical experience actually drove a lot of my choices in what research I wanted to do and focus on mm. and it ended up being a win-win situation because the findings that because they're so clinician driven the findings that I get are so clinically relevant mm. that it captures the attention of policymakers. My advice to medical students <laughs> is study hard <laughs> because patients' lives are in your hands mm. and everything you study has some implication in how you make a decision, whether you're a houseman on call at 4am at night and you need to make a decision and Google or internet is down and you need to prescribe something you forgot the dose, you know, still study hard, know everything as far as you can and do what you love. Always try to do what you love. That is the advice of my father. Mm. And because my father told me, um, when you do what you love, every morning you don't go to work, you go to play. And to, up to today, every morning when I wake up, I'm going to play. Choose the discipline that you have a passion for. Choose to do things that you have the passion for. Then you actually live a more um, meaningful, fulfilled, purposeful life. Mm.